Our next storyteller. Next storyteller. Your next storyteller. Our next storyteller. Hello and welcome to The Narrators. This podcast collects stories from our live events where people share true stories based on a theme. Today's story comes from Chris Walker. This story was recorded live on January 20th, 2016. The theme of the evening was Promise. So to provide some context for this story, this happened about three years ago, and I was with my friend Morgan at the time. He's going to be a player in this story. Actually, he was a player in a lot of stories, and that will make more sense in just a moment here. And so just know that Morgan and I were determined to get a story in the mountains of Georgia. And that's this, not the state, but the small country on the border with Russia. Now, at this point, we were about six months into a two-year trip, and we were riding our bicycles between Paris, France, and Shanghai, China. And at this point, the two of us had already become kind of this strange cyclist-journalist hybrid. And the reason we wrote was because we wanted to have some greater purpose to our trip, and so we learned how to freelance stories to magazines in the United States. But we also wrote stories because we were this competitive duo, fresh out of college, and each one of us didn't want the other to think that we were doing this just to avoid getting a real job. And so we were terribly insecure in the shadows of each other, as dependent on one another as best friends and writing partners, as we were constantly irritated with the other dude. But that, that story, the roller coaster ride of how I stuck through a two-year trip with one friend is a completely different saga. I just wanted to sort of lay that groundwork. Um, and actually, Morgan is here in the audience. He lives in Denver now. I still can't get away from that fucker. Yeah, he, he knows I'm kidding. All right, so back to Georgia. So we're six months into our trip, and so we'd made this promise to ourselves and to each other that we wouldn't leave the country without finding a great scoop. And the cool thing about freelance journalism is that you can follow your interests, which in our case took us high up into the Caucasus Mountains, where we hoped to meet and document some of the badass climbers and mountaineers who summit some of the region's most dangerous peaks. We sought to be around our mountaineering heroes, those guys, who could, those guys and gals who could make our own adrenaline-seeking and adventures look like child play. So eventually we arrive in this town called Mestia after spending days cycling there up steep roads. And so with all the authority of our disgusting clothes and our bike jerseys, which you know have those water bottle pa- pockets in the back, we walk right into the, the regional search and rescue headquarters and announce that we're there as journalists from Los Angeles, and we'd like to interview the head of the search and rescue team. The absurdity is that this actually worked. And so the next thing we know, we're bumbling through this completely ill-prepared interview with a guy named Vichia until about 10 minutes in, he's relieved from these two clueless Americans by a call requesting full deployment of the search and rescue team to a, new, a nearby peak named Ushba because it's reported that there's multiple climbers there who've been caught in a snowstorm. Now, Ushba meant nothing to us at the time, but we'd soon learn, we'd soon learn of its reputation in the region, both for its beauty and for its treachery. 
killing an average of half a dozen climbers every single year because of its unstable glaciers and its unpredictable weather. So the squad leader tells us to scram and that, yes, it's way too dangerous for us to go with them. And so Morgan and I watch the rescue team leave for their expedition, and we head glumly back to our hostel with no story, empty-handed aside from some two-liter plastic bottles of beer, which seemed to be the standard size of beer in Georgia that we'd picked up from a store. And I partly blame that beer for the, cl- the crazy plan that we hatched that night. We decided that we'd head up to Ushba ourselves to see if we could witness the rescue. This was a half-baked plan, to say the least, and almost everything went wrong from the first. Morgan tried his best to rent some backpacks the next morning because we didn't have them, and so he waited an hour for a woman who finally returned with these two school bags that looked like they could fit maybe two textbooks. And so, losing time, we ended up putting our clothes, our food, our tent, and gear into a couple of our bicycle bags from our touring bikes, and we slung them over our shoulders like satchels. And and we really didn't need the expression on the face of the driver that we hitched with to the trailhead to know that we looked ridiculous and were probably likely candidates for the search and rescue team's next call. (laughs) And then, as was inevitable with one partner on this trip, Morgan and I got into it when we got on the trail and I took us on a wrong turn and we ended up spending the whole afternoon going up this watershed. And so we spent that night fuming at each other for our mess ups, feeling the promise of that story slip away and the, and the likelihood that the rescue would be over by the time that we actually got there. And I remember when I first laid my eyes on the actual peaks of Ushba, it was when we crested a ridge two days later and it really was something to behold. There's this saddle near the top, almost a perfect horseshoe cutout between these two gleaming jagged peaks, and they were trailing snow that was blowing in the wind. And I'm I'm trying to recall what, if any, surprise the search and rescue team showed when we just came out of the blue into their camp. They were probably like, what the fuck are these guys doing here, and how did they get here? Um, But it quickly became apparent that we were not the focus of their concern because we pestered a rescue team member named George, and he let us know what was going on. And I remember feeling like I'd stumbled into a John Krakauer book. So the night before, a climber on the mountain had died. He'd fallen off the mountain after stepping outside of his tent and forgetting to attach himself to a rope. And then that day, there had been two helicopter attempts to airlift his body off the mountain and the helicopter couldn't get close enough because the winds were too intense. But much more concerning than that was Andranik Miribian, who was this lone Armenian climber that was stranded high up on the mountain, perched precariously on a ledge just 200 feet below the summit. And he dug this space out, no more than two feet wide on which he could sleep, and he'd put his tent poles in the snow above him to act as lightning rods to protect him from electrical storms. He was also wrapped in his sleeping bag and his tent to try to protect him from frostbite, and he couldn't move down the mountain because there was so much snow packed that he might set off an avalanche. And the reason the rescue team knew all this information was because Andreanik actually had a working phone, which he could charge using a hand crank generator. 
And then on top of all of this, there was this 20-man Russian team that had spent years planning their expedition to go up this route called Mushalov's route. And they had to abandon their attempt with the snowstorm. And, and so after giving up a chance for the peak, the 16 bravest of them were staying on the mountain to try to get up to Andreinik and rescue him from the summit. I know, it was pretty intense. And so for me, this is where things kind of get ethically strange as a journalist because it's like you've just stumbled into this jackpot of tragedy and drama where there's been a death and there's imminent possibility of more death. And as fucked up as it is, that means that we had an awesome story. But, you know, we had to tell it well and we had to tell it ethically. And now is a question of how that story would be resolved, whether Andreinik would be saved and whether another promise, that unspoken understanding between mountaineers that they would try everything they could to save their peers from death would be enough to conquer whatever plans nature would throw their way. So Morgan and I spent the next two days at camp kind of crisscrossing this fine line between wanting to stay out of the way and then butting in during down moments to get updates on what was going on. And it was painful work because it was like every single detail had to be forcibly extracted. And every question that I asked George and Constantine, which were the, unfortunately for them, the two English speakers in the camp, would annoy them just a little bit more. Here's an example conversation that I had with Constantine. And he was one of the four Russians who'd come down from this, this expedition. So um, Constantine, can you tell me about what the storm on the mountain was like? It was a big storm. <laughs> a big storm, I see. So uh, how heavily was it snowing? There was a lot of snow. A lot of snow. So were you snowed in in your tents? Duh. And onwards this game of 20 questions would drag until finally there was enough detail to realize that the Russians had been huddling together in their you know, two people per sleeping bag in these tents and they'd been stuck up on the mountain for days before they could actually brave the snow and come back down. And then keep in mind, between all of this, we're getting calls down from the mountain, both from the 16 Russians and also from Andreinik, whose phone is still working. And so on the third day, things kind of took a depressing turn and things came to a head the Russians radioed down to, t to say that they could not continue up the slope because it was too, too dangerous. And then later that afternoon, Morgan and I watched two last helicopter evac attempts try to get Andreinik off the top of the mountain, but the wind was too much. And then finally, there was a call from Andreinik himself, who said that he'd just been able to reach his wife in Armenia to tell her and his newborn daughter that he loved them and that it was unlikely he'd be returning home. At this point, it was obvious that no rescuers were going to be able to reach him. And then after that call, I also noticed that the rescuers looked grave for another reason. And it turns out that an Andreinik had told them that if he couldn't be saved, he was going to come down the mountain all by himself. And with this news, a silence fell over the camp. And it mostly stayed that way until the next afternoon. When Russian, when Russian climbers from the failed expedition started trickling into camp, 
collapsing in exhaustion as soon as they got there. A light rain started pattering the slopes, and at that point it seemed all but certain that Andreanik would not make it. So needless to say, when he actually stumbled into camp just before dark, it was like seeing a ghost. He was quickly surrounded, and I remember watching in awe as he was drinking hot tea and sausage as fast as he could get it in his mouth. He was so emaciated, and you could tell that he had frostbite that was developing on his nose. And so a group from the lower base camp was quickly radioed to say that they'd, and they, they said that they'd arrive in half an hour to help them down the rest of the mountain. And the Russians in particular were jubilant, knowing firsthand the conditions on the slope, and they were congratulating him by slapping him on the back. It was a really emotional moment, and I didn't want to interrupt it, yet Morgan and I knew that our own promise as a story meant that we had to, that we had to do some last invasiveness on our part. And so we jostled our way to the front of the crowd, and we were surprised to find that Andreinik could actually speak English. He gave us his name, and he agreed to be identified for the article and have his picture taken before he briefly related how he was able to get down the mountain by slowly lowering himself down the slope, inch by inch, on his butt, testing each step to make sure that he wouldn't fall into a crevasse or give way to an avalanche. And then right at that moment, the group from the lower base camp arrives to escort Andreanik down the mountain, and Morgan shoots off one last question. So, are you going to try to climb the mountain again? Andreanik looks at us and smiles, and then his face turns serious, and he said, Oh, I'm going to climb both the north and the south peaks. And I look over and I see Morgan biting his lip because he knows, and I know, as journalists, we've just been handed the ultimate punch quote to close our article. And again, I, I feel that uncomfortable pull as a storyteller between almost wanting to hug my main character for providing us such great material, but then also feeling slimy because I'm being so calculated in turning this man's near-death experience into a written commodity. And I think since then, I've, I've learned that in those kind of reporting situations, you have, to, you have to trust in the importance of the tale, and that the emotions you'll make your readers feel will be worth some of the probing and extracting that you've done on your subjects. Because Andreanik might have died, but he fulfilled that mountaineer's promise of a rescue in the most remarkable and inspiring way, by taking matters into his own hands. And We'd also taken a risk to a much less significant extent, and we got an unusually lucky story, if lucky is the right word for it, considering that there actually was a climber who died when we were up there. And it all could have come to nothing, and so it felt fulfilling, mostly for Andreanik's sake, when the story was eventually published and people responded to it by calling him a hero. Thank you. All right, that's Chris Walker. Keep it going. Okay.
Narrators was created by Andrew Orvidal and is produced by me, Ron Doyle, Sydney Crane, and Aaron Rollman, with support from Scott Carney, Karen Wachtel, Jesse Witten, and Robert Rutherford. We'd like to thank our sponsors, Bumport Theater Company, Illegal Pete's, From the Hip Photo, and Great Divide Brewing Company. Our theme music is by Whalehawk, and we'd also like to thank the Milk Blossoms, who provided the music you're listening to right now, and fans just like you, who attend our live monthly shows, which take place every third Wednesday of the month at Bumport Theater in Denver, Colorado. For more information about our storytellers or the narrators, visit thenarrators.org and find, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Yeah.